Well, good evening. Welcome. Um, hey, before we get started, I want to do uh, just a couple things real quickly here. First of all, um, let, me invite, let me invite our ushers to come forward for our weekly tithes and offering. Uh, this is for Timberline family. If you're a guest, we don't expect you to give. Um, Timberline family, thank you that you are committed to, uh, to giving and impacting our community as well as around the world. So um, thank you for your faithfulness. You can go ahead and start passing. We've already prayed. Um, last thing is, when you walked in, you along with your bulletin, you probably picked up the Christmas Family Festival announcement December 4, just a couple weeks away. This is something we do every year. It's, it's a blast. It's a fun time. Uh, if you have kids especially, it's a great time to bring them. There's like hay rides and live nativity set. And, you know, my kids love petting. There's like was there like a llama last year? There's there's weird, funky animals that don't fit into like the things you normally see around and stuff. So kids just like well, I actually I was more interested. I think there was a mini there was a miniature donkey, like tiny. I don't know what you call them, but I was more fascinated by that than the kids. So it, it's just kind of a fun night. But there's a, a really cheap meal. You can come at like 5.30 and, and get a very inexpensive meal. And um, all of this goes to, to support some really significant ministries in our community, ways that we just practically reach out and meet needs of, uh, of those who are in need the most. So hopefully um, you guys will, will be aware of that. Um, just as a reminder, this is in your bulletin. Tonight is our last Wednesday night um, for the semester and we, we take a break. We, we follow the same schedule as our kids and youth do, and they take a break because December just gets kind of crazy, Thanksgiving in December. And so we'll pick back up December 8th. And um, so I hope you guys just have a great break and um, have some good, enjoyable times, and we'll be looking forward. December 8th is when we, when we start back there. What did I say? Well, maybe I meant December 8th. <laughs> January, okay, you're right. I don't like being corrected. Um, January 8th, sorry, thank you, I said it like four times, that's why you guys are yelling at me, I thought this is like the rudest crowd I've ever had in my life, I thought they were like hecklers out there or something, I was just going to press through, I'm like, I'm ignoring you, I'm going to keep going, um, we're, we're in our third and final week uh, of looking at um, a topic that, that I love uh, just personally because C.S. Lewis is, is like my favorite author, um, he, he's impacted me from a, uh, a distance as an author, more than any author has before. And um, we've been saying the, the, the reason we're looking at it is kind of timeliness. Uh, in two days, the, the 22nd of November, is the 50th anniversary of Lewis's death. And, and so it's kind of this timely thing that we're looking at, this guy that God has just used in, in amazing ways, both in the century that preceded us, you know, the 20th century, from the middle of that on. Um, God used him in a, in a powerful way, and it's so neat that we see God continuing to use him, even into the 21st century, impacting so many people at so many levels. People who, you know, who, who, who reach God through deep intellectual questions, those who are exploring the imagination, like we're going to talk a little bit about tonight. So this is kind of a fun topic, but I thought I'd just kind of start out by, by telling a few interesting uh, stories uh, kind of personal aspects of Lewis, which are as interesting as some of his writings oftentimes. Um, you know, one thing that, that, that always kind of strikes me is Lewis never read the newspaper. He, he thought it was kind of a waste of time, which I like that because people give me a hard time that I, I'm not up on what's going because I don't read the newspaper. So this is my justification for it now. But um, even, even though Lewis was dearly loved, 
um, in America by, by American Christians. Um, within American fundamentalism, um, he didn't really fit kind of the clean living, um, clean acting life. Um, he could drink and smoke with the best of them. And, and, and so a lot of uh, fundamentalist uh, American Christians kind of struggled with, man, how do I make sense of this guy, you know? Um, he was quite literally addicted to, to tea as well. Um, there's, this, there's this great story, Walter Hooper, if you ever come across any books by Walter Hooper, Hooper was uh, Lewis's secretary, so he, he was editing his stuff, he's collecting his writings, and so Hooper writes a lot on Lewis, does some interesting biographies, and that sort of thing, but Hooper tells a story one time that he was walking down the street with Lewis, and he said they, they, they saw this fellow who, I don't know if he was homeless, but, but was asking for money, you know, looked down on his luck, and he said Lewis reached in his pocket, and he, and he gave him some money, and as they passed, you know, Hooper said, why, now why'd you do that? You know, he's just going to go spend it on drink. And Lewis said, well, if I didn't give it to him, I would have gone and spent it on drink. So I guess it's just as good. Um, but L Lewis was this guy who just, his life was radically transformed after coming to Christ. And we've talked a little bit about that each week, his whole outlook on life. It was, it was unknown to most of his friends because he wasn't public about it, but, but this, this came out after his life. He gave away over 50% of his income that he made from all of these writings to, to charities. And he did it in an anonymous way. And he, he lived very humbly. Uh, stories are told that if you met him, you didn't know that he was this famed, you know, he's the most influential Christian thinker in the middle of the 20th century. And the, the, what was said about him is, you would just think he's a butcher, you know. Um, you, would, you would see him in the pub. He and his friends loved to hang out in one pub in particular that, that they would go to uh, probably a couple times a week. And um, they would hang out. They were called the Inklings. And this is just a, they were kind of a group of writers. You know, they were other professors and thinkers, guys like J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings. In fact, Lewis is the one who prompted Tolkien to, to really go after this idea that, that he was kind of ruminating on about the Lord of the Rings. And so they would go hang out in this pub. The, the name of it was The Eagle and the Child. And in this pub, they would talk about philosophy and religion and politics. And they would do these kind of out loud readings of stories they were working on and they would critique each other and lewis had a one thing that lewis was really big on was friendship um, in one of his personal letters he said if a young man asked me about any piece of advice kind of like what to do in the future he said the one thing i would tell him is to sacrifice almost anything in life to live near his friends sacrifice almost anything to live near friends because lewis was this guy who he drew so much from deep friendships in his life. He was a guy of, he, he, he just enjoyed life in so many ways. Another thing that's kind of interesting about Lewis, if you know much about him, you're aware of this, but he lived almost his whole life. He was 59 years old when he married a 41-year-old, and it was kind of to everyone's shock. Uh, this this 41-year-old was Helen Joy Davidman Gresham. She was a New Yorker. Uh, she was an American. She was um, an ex-atheist, had kind of come to faith in large part by some of uh, Jack's writings. She was an ex-member uh, of the American Communist Party, ex-Hollywood screenwriter. She was a Jewish convert to Christianity, novelist, poet. She was also divorcee, and she had two young children, two young boys. And um, if you ever want to see kind of interesting story about their relation, they had, a, they had an uncommonly good marriage only lasted three years, and she died of cancer, same thing that his mother died of when he was nine years old. 
And um, maybe you've, how many of you have seen the movie Shadowlands? There's a great, there was a play done about it. There's a great uh, Anthony Hopkins stars in it. The American version's better than the British version. I don't just say that because I'm an American. But uh, um, Anthony Hopkins stars it. it. It's really well done. It ends with, it doesn't end quite with, um, it kind of ends with some question like, man, is he totally questioning whether or not God exists? He kind of came through that, but he has this deep wrestling after he loses his wife. But it's a, it's a fantastic movie if you're interested in it. And um, on the back of your bulletin, there, there are some suggested reading. Every, every week I've been trying to put a couple like really good books that I would say these are fun ones as you want to explore a little bit more on whatever kind of topic we're talking about tonight. And tonight we're going to specifically look at kind of the Chronicles of Narnia. But, but one thing that, that I really like about Lewis, um, Lewis wrote all of these letters of correspondence, handwritten, he didn't type any of them, handwritten correspondence with, with people. And um, they've been published, you know, people have collected these over the years. And Lewis is like the only writer I know who his letters, his personal letters, are almost as good as his books. I mean, it's just a, it's, it's really amazing. And so I gave you kind of one suggestion in there. But um, Lewis hated writing letters. He hated, he, he didn't like responding to them. And wh- wh- what's really interesting is, um, and I don't know how many of you guys are like, like, I'm like this at work. Emails, I just, every day, this is such a drudgery, you know, to me of just like emails and filtering through and there's junk emails and responding to stuff and you've got so many. On average, Lewis received about 100 handwritten letters, letters a week from the late 1940s until he died in 1963. About 100 a week. And he was, he was committed to responding to each and every single one of them. And a large number of them were, were from children. And he responded to every single one by hand. And um, what's so cool, I think, and inspirational is he saw this as a responsibility that, that he had. Um, that, that he would get up every single day really early, extra early, just to answer letters that, that he would write back. It's estimated that, that he wrote 50,000 letters uh, of about 3,800 pages total back to all of these people. And he believed that, that, that God had given him this opportunity, even though it was kind of a drudgery, an opportunity of one small thing he could do. And what's so cool is in light of all the things that he accomplished in life, I mean, this guy, he's, you know, he, he did so much. This thing was kind of unnoticed by most people, except, of course, all these little tiny individuals who were receiving letters back, asking him counsel and, and different things impacted their lives enormously. People still possess these letters to this day, and they say, this changed my life, the way he responded to me. And I guess even just one thing before I go on, I would kind of challenge us to say, what, what's one insignificant, tiny little thing that, that, that maybe God has put in front of you that you could do as an act of spiritual devotion to him? And maybe it's tough, maybe you don't really, I mean, maybe as a grandparent, my mom was telling me about um, a friend of hers that she had lunch with just a couple weeks ago, and her husband just passed away. He was the first person to die of West Nile in Colorado during the year, and his, his funeral was just a couple months ago, and she had lunch with her the other day, and she was talking to her, and, and she, she said she was just like in despair. She just said, my whole life, you know, I thought I'd carried on better, and my life's just, it's just wrecked. And she's got four kids and all these grandkids and all this stuff, and she just kind of feels purposeless. And she was struggling with that. And, and my mom challenged her. She said, you know, 
maybe your life's not over. You know, maybe what you have left is those grandkids. What, what if it's praying for them? Do you text? Yeah. What if it's texting them every once in a while? Just, just keeping in touch with their lives, kind of like Lewis was, of just keeping in touch with them, praying for them, sending a message, letting them know that grandma loves them more than anything else in the whole world. She goes, maybe, maybe that's what God has for you in this next chapter. And she said it just kind of like woke her up from this place of despair to maybe there's purpose. And I, again, I would just ask us to say, what's that one tiny thing that you can do? Um, finally, one interesting thing about Lewis, shortly before Britain declared war on Germany, this is um, World War II, they declared war September 3rd, uh, 1939, um, many of the children from London were evacuated you know, these are the night raids, the air raids are happening. Parents are, are, are concerned about their children. And so they send them out to the countryside, different houses. They're looking for people who will, who will take their children. And Professor Lewis, the house that he lived in with just a few others, agreed to have some of these children from London come out and stay with him. And um, his home is called The Kilns. And so, and so many children over these years would come out and stay with him for, for quite a period of time. Um, he, he, he writes about some of them to his brother, Warney, who, who went off back to war during World War II. And he writes to him saying, you know, we're having a marvelous time. These young, he had some young girls staying there and some boys at different times. And um, it's really interesting. It seems like that experience of him opening up his home is, is what caused him to pen what may have been the very first words about Narnia. Okay? This is on the back. He had a manuscript called The Dark Tower, and we found this on the back of this manuscript. He writes this. This is, this is like a book idea, okay? because he's, he's this creative guy. He said, this book is about four children whose names were Anne, Martin, Rose, and Peter. But it is mostly about Peter, who was the youngest. They all had to go away from London suddenly because of the air raid. And because father, who was in the army, had gone off to war, and mother was doing some sort of work. They were, sent, they were sent to stay with a relation of the mother's, who was a very old professor, who lived by himself in the country. Now, if you know anything about the Chronicles of Narnia, the names are different, right? This was just kind of an initial idea. We don't hear any more of Narnia in his writings until about a decade later. But this seems to be the early workings in his life of this idea that, that, that has impacted so many people. Maybe he's most well-known for his chronicles of Narnia. And so now at the end of the 1940s, um, Lewis has become very popular for his academic work. Uh, college students today still read much of his more highbrow academic writings. He also is quite popular for his theological writings. You know, uh, books like Mere Christianity. We talked a little bit about some of those last week. And let me just make a note or kind of say something interesting about, about that. Um, Lewis realized he was not a theologian. You know, I mean, he said that multiple times. And he even said, you know, I don't even necessarily feel really called to write on theology. That's not like my, my giftings I don't really feel like. I don't feel like it's like what, what God has charged me. It's not my vocation. I'm not involved in theological work. I'm not in the church or anything. But he said, no one else is doing it. <laughs> you know, he said, all these, all these theologians are writing stuff that the average person can't even understand. All these people in seminaries and professors. No one can even get it. So maybe I'll just kind of do like a theology for dummies, right? And I'll write it. And he did. And again, what's so cool is this, this heart of like, well, no one else is doing it. 
you know, I guess I'll do it. Think about how many creative things have been started in our world. How many endeavors to, to impact the world. I think about so many ministries here even locally at Timberline as well as just in our, in our local area of people who said they saw something and it's just like, no one's taking care of that. No one's doing that. Do I feel called to it? I don't know. But no one's doing it. Maybe I'll step up. And so Lewis stepped into that role because he's always very uh, available for God. Um, in fact, there's kind of a cool story. Uh, uh, Carl F.H. Henry, who was the editor of Christianity Today, wrote Lewis some letters and he said, would you write more? Would you write more doctrine, more theology? And, and Lewis's response, he wrote a letter back to him. He said, um, I think I have done my job in writing as straightforward as possible, meaning just, you know, doctrine and theology. He said, um, now my job is to write in fantasy and symbol, and listen to what he said, I love this, so as to catch people unawares. Done the highbrow stuff, I've done the stuff that just people can wrestle with, they can argue, they can challenge. Now, now I'm going in covert. (laughs) Now I'm going to do something that's going to try to catch people unawares. Because, see, if you remember last week, we talked about modernism. You remember that, this whole idea that Lewis was born in the modern era? The modern era is characterized by kind of skepticism um, about having knowledge. You can't know anything unless you can taste, touch, feel. You know, it's empirical. Unless you can prove it in a lab or unless it's kind of rationally justifiable, that, that sort of thing. Um, without any authority sources or anything like that, unless you can prove it in a kind of mathematical equation, it's not real. You can't know it. And we talked about some of the things that fall off the table, you know, love and and souls and beauty and all all these things that you can't taste measure but are very real are lost in modernism. And so, you know, things like uh, chastity, bravery, honesty, this just, these just become personal preference. You can't make a scientific statement about bravery, can you? So all these things kind of go, go to the side. And, um, and the church had kind of lost its influence. It was anemic. The church wasn't making an impact in the culture, at least in England. And, and so many people, Lewis saw, were, were like inoculated by Christianity. The gospel couldn't get to people because they had just enough of it for it to be dangerous. Right? They had heard just enough information that they go, oh yeah, I know that bit. You know, I don't, I don't need that. So he felt like some people you can't get through to with that sort of direct, straightforward communication. You can't get to them. And of course, this is even true today. A lot of people, I mean, some of us, that's our story. Yeah, I grew up in church and, and uh, you know, I heard a lot of it. It wasn't just never really connected with me. And I lived a lot of years of, of, of being awake because I thought, ah, I know all that. It's myth, it's story, it's whatever. It's not practical. It doesn't impact my real life. It's only about what I do on Sunday morning or whatever it might be. And then we come back in contact with the living God and everything changes. But he said, how, how do we get through to those people? And so Lewis asks, how do I reach people who have been vaccinated from Christianity? Um, how do I, and this is his language, how do I get past a certain inhibition which paralyzed much of my own religion since childhood? And he said, you know, how come that people don't like feel what they ought to feel about God? Or or what about like, you know, the cross? 
Like you talk about that to people, that should shatter them, and they're just kind of, eh, you know, oh yeah, that's, that's good moral teaching, or yeah, that's interesting. But how come it's not, it's not grabbing their heart? And he says, you know, maybe it's because we just told them they should feel something. This should impact you, right? We just told them they should. He says, you know, that doesn't work. Or, or maybe we made it this, we made it so high up, and, and is it reverent? Yes, but we, we made God an element of reverent study. He's a topic to be studied. And he goes, maybe, maybe that did it in this way. And so he says this, I love this. This is kind of what launches in. He says, but suppose casting all these things faith and, and transformed life and the gospel, the cross of Christ, sin, salvation, hell, all these realities. So suppose casting all these things into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, one could make them for the first time appear in their real potency. Could one not thus and listen to this, I love this. Could one not thus steal past the watchful dragons? <laughs> He's picturing like our heart is like in a cave and there's a dragon on the outside of it. Lewis is, you know, uh, a professor of uh, medieval Renaissance literature. These are the images that come to his mind. And our heart's deep in the cave, but there's a dragon on the outside protecting it with all these arguments and no, it can't be true in this. And he said, what, how can we get past the watchful dragon into the heart of the person where Christ and the Holy Spirit can go to work on their heart to really impact them. And then to many people's surprise, Lewis, he starts doing fairy tales. And people kind of go, what's, what's, what's that? And an Oxford Don doing fairy tales? He starts doing children's writing. He starts doing science fiction. And as he had always been impressed by his teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, he remembered, you know, Jesus taught in pictures. Jesus talked a lot about stories. Jesus used this thing we call parables all the time. And they seem to get past these kind of preconceived ideas of, oh, I'm okay with God. Remember, how many times did Jesus in the Gospels approach people who said, no, 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 I'm good. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm Abraham's child. And he goes, God could raise up children from this rock. That's not, that won't work. And so he used these great pictures and stories to to blame people to get to their heart and so this is this great there's this great statement that lewis makes in in his sermon that that he preached the weight of glory we talked about that last week he says do you think i am trying to weave a spell he says perhaps i am but remember your fairy tales spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them and you and i have a need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness. That's modernism he's talking about for these ideas, which has been laid upon us for nearly 100 years. So Lewis believed that the power of imagination that's, that, that, that's evoked through story, just like Jesus understood, could get past those watchful dragons inside each of us and that's exactly what the chronicles of narnia do that's what some of his other writings do as well and so 
as, as, you, as you come to the very first book, and, and I'll tell you, I wish so badly, I, I really struggle with like, okay, how do we do this? There's like seven books, and I want to like give an overview of them all and talk about important things, and, and like we just don't have the time to do it, so read them, okay? Go read them. But the very first one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first thing that, that, that Lewis started penning has this idea of these four children in this old professor's house, they're there, remember, because they're air raids, they're out in the country, they're stumbling around playing hide-and-seek, and they find this old wardrobe in this professor's room, and they stumble into it, and they stumble into this kind of magical world called Narnia, and in this world, th there are talking animals, and there's magic, and there's this white witch, and most importantly, the, there is this lion named Aslan. Um, and what I want to look at, just because, again, there's so much here, is just one overarching, powerful theme that I would suggest runs through all of these interlocking seven stories, and really many of his other stories as well, and, and again, hopefully just kind of whet your appetite to read it as well. And, and this is the theme. Let me write it up here. that which story do I trust um, the very first thing I think that that happens when these children enter the wardrobe and and they enter Narnia and they're trying to figure out what's what's going on there's snow and there's this lamppost and a fawn and an umbrella and they're just they're just like what, what is this what's going on in this world they're trying to answer what is Narnia right? Um, who owns it? What is it all about? And as soon as they enter Narnia, they get different versions of the answer, of the story. Is it the realm of the white witch? Some people tell them that. Or is Aslan the true king, who will one day return and indwell Narnia? And see, I would suggest What's so powerful about this is this is, the, this is the exact same human experience from the moment of birth. We're trying to figure out what's life and what's going on. We start with our toes and then the bigger world, and we're trying to make sense of things. And we're presented with different answers to it, right? Am I just a random collocation of atoms produced by kind of a, just a mindless process? Or am I somehow the creation of a loving, personal, intelligent God who has a purpose for my life. See, totally different stories, radically different stories. And we go through life trying to make sense of it, just like the kids do when they enter Narnia. And so they're, they're having these same experiences there as they do even in this world, in this realm. And see, I would suggest, here's the power of breathing Narnian air. When you, when you, when you go into Narnia and you're on that side of the door, and you start asking questions about a new place. What's this? Who's in charge? What is authority? How do I know truth? How can I determine? And then you walk back to this side of the door. Your time in Narnia helps you make sense of your time in this world better. Breathing Narnian air is helpful for us to live in this world, and that was Lewis's whole understanding of what that sort of fairy tale idea does for us. 
Let me give you one example. Um, in the book, The Silver Chair, uh, there, there are two children, two human children, named Eustace and Jill. Um, they, they arrive in Narnia, and their goal is to rescue some people who the, the, this, this witch has captured. And the witch has built this, this dungeon underground, okay? And, and she has made these people work for her. These, I don't know, I can't remember if they were trolls, but there's all these caves going all around. But everything's underground in this world. And that's where these people are that, that they're trying to rescue. So they go under there, they find them, and they're going to try to steal them away. Well, the witch catches them, and you think she's going to try to stop them with her power, but she doesn't. She just kind of starts talking to him. She starts playing on a mandolin. She casts some stuff into a fire. And it's this kind of almost spell that, that, that she's casting. And she starts talking to them. And, and there's this almost enchantment going on. And she begins to seduce them into this idea that Narnia's the overland, what's above. There is no Narnia. It's, it, this is what's real. That's not. And there's no Aslan. Okay? Well, um, Really, and, and these others start disagreeing. Well, of course there is, and so they start dialoguing with, well, yes, there is, and, and that sort of thing. And so one character says, I've seen it. I've been in the overland. I've looked up at the sky at night, and I've seen stars. And then in the, from the east in the morning, I've seen the this, this sunrise, and I've felt the heat of it on my body. I've, I've seen the world because of, because of the sun. And the witch asks a very provocative question. She says, now, what, what do you mean by sun? And he goes, well... Um, he points to a lamp over there, and he says, well, it's, it's like that lamp, only far greater and brighter. It gives light to the whole overland, and it hangs in the sky. And she goes, oh, that's so silly. Don't you see what you've done? See, you've seen lamps down here. Of course there's lamps all over. You've stared so long at the lamp that you've kind of expanded and, and, and created the concept of a sun, this sort of giant lamp in the sky. Isn't that cute? But it's a childish dream. Clearly there is no sun. You're just taking this smaller idea and you're expanding it, making it bigger. You're sort of imposing this little idea on something up there because you want there to be a sun. And, uh, and she says, and, and what about Aslan? You know, what is he like? Oh, he's this golden lion and he's like this. And she says, oh, you're so, that's so cute. Do you remember when you were in my area? Remember that little yellow cat you saw? See, you've seen a yellow cat, and, and this is wish fulfillment. You thought, what if there could be a great yellow cat? And, you, and so you create out of wish fulfillment this golden mane and this beautiful lion who will always protect you and always watch over you. But see, this is wish fulfillment. Um, now, if, if you've heard much of kind of Freudian psychology, this is what Lewis is responding to. But again, he's doing it in Narnia, where we do it safely. We don't have all these watchful dragons that have already tricked us. Freudian theology and other guys who came before Freud, guys like Feuerbach and others, said, let me explain God to you. You think there's a God. The reason why is because when you're a little kid, your dad, he watches out for you. But as you get older, you realize dad's not that strong. You know, he messes up. I thought dad knew everything. Dad, you know, walk, hung the moon, whatever you want to say. Well, dad, you know, I don't trust dad. He's not that, but, but he protected me, took care of me, and then eventually dad dies, and so we say, man, I want to, oh, I wish I had that. So what we do is we kind of take this idea of a dad who watched over, and we project it up there into the sky, and we say, maybe there's a big dad, maybe there's a heavenly father, and he always watches out for me, and he always cares for me, and he always wants to listen, and he's always there. 
See, that's why you believe in God. You want there to be a God, and so you make him. And, and Lewis deconstructs that argument, but in this unique realm of Narnia. And he, has, he says, see, modernism does this to the world. It inverts it. See, God tells us that there's a God, and fathers are weak copies of that. God says there's love, and things like lust are this sort of degraded copied of love. Modernism says, no, 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 it's the other way around. The base, you know, sort of just physical lust, that's what's real. And then we create this concept of love. It doesn't exist. We have human fathers who are faulty and messed up, and then we create a concept. And, and, and Lewis is pointing out how it is that modernism puts those watchful dragons in front of our cave so that we, we won't let Aslan in into our lives. Let me give you a second example. This is a neat one. This is, this is one of my favorite. Um, if you've ever read uh, The Horse and His Boy, the, the, there is a character in there named Shasta. And Shasta is this young boy who's kind of an orphan. Uh, he was taken from his parents early on as a child. We don't really know the story. But he, uh, um, he, gets, he gets placed up with, with Erebus, this other girl, and they have these two horses, and they go on this long journey across this, it's sort of like Arabian Nights kind of stuff, across this desert, and, and um, Shasta's whole life has been very difficult. He, had, he, he was found in this basket, almost like Moses put out in the water, found by this fisherman who's very cruel, never gives him love, treats him like a slave, and as he grows up, when he does run away, everything seems to go wrong for him from his perspective. And uh, he, he kind of fulfills his goal. He's, he's trying to get this message to this king about the bad guys coming. But every step along the way, you know, he has to, one point he, um, he has to spend the night in a, in a graveyard among all these graves. And he hears jackals that, that are kind of yelping around him. Oh, they're going to come get me. I know it. And, and this is a lot, this is an area where lions are, he's told. And at one point he's on his horse and a lion begins chasing them and injures a horse and he has to jump off and and all these different things start happening. And then he even gets separated from his one and only friend, the girl who's on the horse. And his horse is injured, so he's got to go by foot. And he gets on this other horse, which isn't his, isn't his horse, and he's going, he doesn't know how to really steer this, this horse. And so he gets lost. And he doesn't know, you know, the bad guys are in between him and where he's trying to go. And he rides up a mountain pass and just in this thick fog comes in. And covers things so much that he can hardly, he can't even see his hands in front of his face as he's going. And he says this, he's just thinking about his life, about his hardships. He says, I do think, says Shasta, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that has ever lived in the whole world. How many of us have thought that at times? Everything goes right for everyone except me. Those Narnian lords and ladies got safe away in ta from Tashban. I was left behind. Erevis and Bree and Huynh and all um, as snug as anything in that old hermit. And of course, I was the one sent on. King Loon and all his people must have got safely into the castle and shut gates long before Rabidash arrived, but I got left out. And, and he's, he's just going on. And he's got this combination of loneliness, um, exhaustion. He hasn't eaten in days. He's hungry. And tears just start rolling down his face. And Shasta has lived a hard life from day one, no doubt about it. 
He was orphaned, no education, no friends, no, no real love. And every glimmer of hope in the story, when it starts, it's just like, it's torn away from his life. And he's, he feels like he's at the mercy of forces. Like he has no control over the forces in his life. And then to top it all off, he's on this journey, this deep fog comes in, and as he's riding this horse, he can't see anything, it's dark, it's difficult. he starts hearing next to him, right here, this deep, this deep breathing of some beast. And he just goes, this is, this is it. <laughs> you know, I'm food. This is the end. And he's paranoid. And so he's just quiet, walking on his horse, trotting along as he goes. And he goes, and, and finally he musters up enough courage and he goes, who are you? And the response he gets is this really cool thing. And see, for Lewis, Lewis is a guy who was there. He's a nine-year-old little boy. He said, all I knew is my dad came and told me my mom was sick. She had cancer. And back then, they did surgery in homes. He said, and she was in there with women. There were nurses and doctors in the house. He said, and my brother and I lost her even before she was dead because we couldn't go see her. There was morphine, and she was in and out. She wasn't even coherent. And they did the surgery, and he talked to her strange smells and sounds and quiet conversations. And my father finally comes to me after all and says, your mom's dead. And he said his dad died after that, not physically, but emotionally, completely absent. He became erratic. Uh, he became angry and all these things in his life. Just, he said, the first time I prayed was before my mom died. And I said, God, please don't kill her. Kill my mom, please. And she didn't. She didn't live. And he was there before. And he writes this story. And when he asks the question, who are you? This is the coolest thing. What he gets back is this. One who has long waited for you to speak. And so he starts going, what are you, what are you, like, what are you talking about? Are you going to devour me? Is this it? You know, just get it over. And he says, why are you so troubled? And so Shasta starts talking to him, and, and he recounts everything. I was an orphan. I was, you know, put out in the water, and this happened, and I was this, and I was, you know, uh, in, the, in the tombs, and all these jackals are out there, and this lion chases me, and all this stuff. And, and it's bottled up all this hurt, and he finally kind of gets it out. And then the voice says, I do not call you unfortunate. And then he informs him that in all of his journeys... He says, you know, you said there were all these lions there. He said, there weren't, there weren't all these lions. There was just one lion. He was really fat. And he goes, well, who was that? And then he answers this, the voice next to him. He says, I was the lion who forced you to join with avarice. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that they would reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, the little baby near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. And what he realizes later on it said, there seems to be at the back of all stories Aslan. It's like he's behind all stories. And then he says, who are you? And the answer is great. He says, myself. He says it three times. Myself, myself, myself. Kind of reminiscent of the I am statements of Jesus in the Bible. And seeing the face of this 
and then it, he can kind of see, and it's this terrible beast, it's this lion. And he, he doesn't know if he's safe, and he almost feels more scared, but at the same time, there's something there of peace. And seeing this face, terrible and yet beautiful, the shining lion, Shasta slips out of the saddle, falls to his feet, and it says he couldn't say anything, but then he didn't want to say anything, and he knew he didn't need to say anything at that moment. Aston shows up. Why is this so important? Because unless, unless you believe God is sovereign in your life, right? that means in control, nothing escapes him. You, you will live with anxiety, deep anxiety, because you will be trying to control and manipulate and negotiate everything that's going on in your life. Or you will live in absolute despair because when you can't control everything, you give up, you throw your hands up. And see, it's only with the sovereignty of God. And so this question, which, which story will I believe? Because your life is the data, okay? Your biography is the data. And there are a lot of different stories to account for it. What makes sense of it? Now, you might say, you know, that's great for Shasta, but God hasn't shown up for me. But see, don't you see? He has. The cross. Christ showed up. Maybe the most powerful central story in all of the Chronicles of Narnia is, is this account where Aslan, because of a young boy na named, named Edmund who has, who has been a traitor, and there's this deep magic, there's sort of a, a statement that, that no one can break this magic, that the blood of a traitor belongs to the witch. And everyone has to obey it because the magic was set up by the emperor who lives across the sea, whose son is Aslan. And so even he has to obey. He can't, he can't go around it. And so Aslan goes to the witch and he says, well, what if you let Aslan go? I mean, what if you let Edmund go and I take his place? And she's just going, oh, what a sucker. This is great. And so she takes him and it's this horrendous story of them binding him and shaving his mane and all these ghouls and witches and goblins and they, and they pull him and they kill him on this, on this giant rock and he's dead and they leave, and these two little girls are left watching. They've seen almost the whole thing, and they begin to walk away. And my favorite part of the story, this, as the sun rises, there's this huge crack. And the stone table breaks, and they go back, and they look, and he's gone. And then the, just as the sun comes up over the east, Aslan stands there full mane, his muscles just shimmering, twitching. And this huge roar, full power, like they've never seen him in this majesty, like they've never seen him before. And they said, but I don't get it. The witch knew the magic. And he goes, she knew magic, but there's a deeper magic she didn't know. She knew this, but if she could look back, she knew the magic that started when time began. But there was a magic that came even before then that she couldn't see. It was a mystery. And that magic said this. That when willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start to start working backwards. I think that's what Paul has in mind when in 1 Corinthians 2 7 he says, We declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord God. In this sort of judo move, Christ takes what Satan intended 
and he's there for you. He goes to the cross. He, he pays the penalty that I deserve, that you deserve, on the cross. He is brought down that I can be brought up. He goes into darkness that I can stand in light. And he's there for you. And that is proof, I would suggest. That is absolute proof that God is sovereign, that he is in total control. And so I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward. I want us to do something that is, it's more than hugely symbolic. We do a lot of things that are symbolic. This is, this is kind of a reenactment in a way, is, is some of the ways that the church has spoken about this. This idea that we go back to something that, that it, it tore a curtain, it cracked a table, and it changed all of human history. And that's the death of Christ. That his death, when a willing victim who had, who had committed no treachery died for those who didn't, that, that the table would be cracked, the curtain would be torn, and death itself would start working backwards. And Jesus said, every time you do this, you take bread, which represents my body, that, that was torn, and you take the cup that represents my blood that was shed. He said, you proclaim that the emperor from across the sea has planted something in the ground, that new creation has begun, that the winter has begun to thaw, and all of life is different. So I would ask you, ushers, you go ahead and pass those. During this next song, please hold on to them. And after the song, I want us to come back together, and I want us to take it together as we reenact and proclaim the mystery of our faith. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. And at the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. And when he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Revelation 21:5 reads, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Who is it who's seated on that throne? Revelation 5, 5 says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He is the one seated on the throne. He is the one who, because of this, what we're holding in our hands, even death itself begins working backwards because he is making all things new. And his body is represented by this bread. And when we take it, we, we reenact the reality that we had a God who stepped out of his story and became weak and broken for us so that we could be whole and strong in him. Let's take the bread together. magic that we learn in the Hebrew scriptures is that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And we could do that in a lot of different ways. We could do it through some sort of sacrificial system of animals, but that doesn't really cover it because it's just animal blood. Our own, but then we don't survive the test. But there's one whose blood is shed, covers our sin, and yet death can't hold him. And that's Christ. Let's take the cup. 
Would you stand and pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you that that you have provided us a better story. And it's not just better, it's true. You have provided us the true story that makes sense of who we are, where we are, whose land this is, who's in charge, what's going on, and how it will all end. And Father, I want to pray this evening for us as, as we go into what is in so many ways a beautiful season, Thanksgiving and Christmas, and yet it is a difficult season. It's one of the most stressful seasons of the year because of the dynamics that take place. And so, Father, we need your empowerment now more than ever. And Lord, as we walk into that, as we begin asking some of those questions of which story will I trust? What's really going on? Is, are, are you really sovereign and there? Father, I pray that we will meet you like Shasta on the road. May we hear that breath next to us that moves us to ask the question, who are you? And God, would you answer in such a way that we would see your sovereignty, your hand at work in our lives? doesn't necessarily change all circumstances, but God, that when we see your sovereign, we can live with joy in our bones and a smile on our face amidst difficulty and amidst tears because we, because we recognize you are in control. And so we, we long for you, Father, to remind us of your control and your sovereignty. We will live differently only if we have taken that into our lives and you have begun changing us. Lord, I pray for the person who, who may be here and the watchful dragons have, have kept you at bay. And it doesn't mean valid questions. There are valid questions, but, but there have been those, those things which have just been barriers. Lord, I pray that you would slay the dragon, that you would reach the heart, and may they come face to face with the true line of Judah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who spoke in our worlds came into existence, and the one before whom we will kneel someday in submission and service and pleasure and beauty and receiving your kingdom with you, Father. We thank you so much for that, God. God, go with us over these next weeks. Bring us all back together here in January. We love you so much. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for the gift of your son that we'll celebrate soon. May we live thankful lives. We pray this in the strong name of our King of Kings, Jesus. And we all said together, amen, amen. We, uh, I would like to invite you, if you would like to come forward, we'll have our prayer team here. We would love to pray with you. Hey, this is our last celebration in community time. Please hang out. We have homemade pumpkin pie homemade pumpkin bars, and if, if you're not a, I've heard there's some ungodly people who don't like pumpkin. We, we've got sugar cookies for you. That's kind of like a consolation prize. So hang out, be together. You guys love you. Thank you so much for being here and a part of this. We'll see you guys in January.